We are continuing this morning in our study of the life of Abraham, and we come to this chapter right in the middle of Abraham's story that really has almost nothing to do with Abraham. It's all about his nephew Lot, and you start to wonder, why would we be interested in Lot? The last time that we heard anything about him was chapter 14. Chronologically, that's at least 15 years ago or so. Since then, we've been told nothing about any interactions that Lot and Abraham have had. So why is he now the main character in this story? And the answer to that question is because Lot has given you a picture of a life that is not interested in being blessed by God in order to be a blessing to others. Instead, Lot is interested in something else. And in that sense, narratologically, Lot functions here as the anti-Abraham. He's showing you this is the result of a life that is not lived by faith. Now, why is that important for us this morning? Because it's so easy to fall into Lot's error without knowing it. Because externally, Lot looks like he's really doing well. He looks very successful, looks like he's been blessed. You remember that he initially moved away from Abraham because he had so many flocks and herds that they were actually competing with Abraham's for food. He selected Sodom and Gomorrah because it was this well-watered land. It reminded him of the Garden of Eden. Along the way, he's gotten married. He's become a family man. He has two daughters along with his wife. And somewhere, he's bought a house in the city. When we meet him here in chapter 19, he's actually sitting in the gateway. That was the place where the civil authorities met for the town. And so the author is telling you, Lot is now established. He's made it. He's moved from that wilderness area that was prone to famine, where he was living a nomadic life as a single person, and he's moved to this lush, well-watered garden, uh, well-watered urban setting. He's gone to being a man of means. His prominence has risen. His responsibility has risen. He's not simply responsible for his family. He's also responsible for the city. All of the external marks of success are there. He's wealthy. He has a family. He has relationships. He has social standing. He looks like he's made it. But those looks are deceiving. And the reality of his life is that he's anything but successful. And yet that reality, what is actually true of Lot, what's true of his life, that's hidden. It's beneath the surface. And you only see it in the light of God's judgment. Now we're going to take a detour for a moment. We're going to acknowledge up front that given our social location, our social climate, it's very difficult to read a chapter like this and to think carefully about Genesis 19. And the reason for that is because there is a very clear morality that is being proposed here. A very clear, this is right and this is wrong. And God makes that difference very clear when he judges. But you and I live in an age of moral relativism. It's an age that has worked hard to deconstruct morality, to take these issues of right and wrong and make them subjective rather than objective. And it does that in a variety of ways. On the one hand, you have philosophers who are arguing that the source of morality is where? It's located in the individual. And so what is right for you is not necessarily right for me. Other philosophers argue that morality is a social construction. It varies from society to society based on who actually is holding power within any of those societies at any given point in time. Both of those positions argue that there is no objective morality that we all have to acknowledge. Instead, morality is what? It's fluid. It's plastic. It's moldable. Matters of right and wrong are not inherent to the universe. They're not imposed on it from outside. Instead, 
They're imposed on because we make choices and we impose our own morality on the society. That's the air that our society has been breathing now going back into the middle of the last century. You can learn that on various levels. You can learn it in the academy when you go to school, you study Foucault and Derrida, or you can learn it on the street. You can go to Twitter. You can laugh at that. <laughs> Thank you, it makes me feel better when you do that. You can find people who say things like, quote, morality is subjective, just like comedy or a person's favorite flavor of ice cream. It will always be this way, unquote. Read that again. Morality is subjective, just like comedy or a person's favorite flavor of ice cream. It will always be this way. In other words, morality is all about personal preference. There is no absolute right or wrong. It's just like ice cream. Some people like vanilla, some people like chocolate. Some people like Rocky Road. You can't dictate what their likes are going to be with ice cream, and you can't dictate what their likes will be with morality. And so it's different for each person depending on their likes and their dislikes. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that there are no moral absolutes, that morality is relative, you're going to struggle when you come to a chapter like this. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And if I start out this morning by saying, well, in the Bible, God says, you're going to be tempted to tune me out. You're going to be tempted to think, well, that might be true if you believe in God or if you believe in the Bible. If you're not sure that you believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible, you're going to go on to think, well, those are your beliefs, Bill. They're, they're not mine. Or they're the beliefs of the author, and, and you can't shove that down my throat. So before we go down that road and we get all antagonistic with each other, maybe, maybe we could actually have a conversation about that. And the conversation might start something like this. Could we consider, if you believe that, that there are no moral absolutes, could we, you consider that maybe you do believe in a moral absolute, you're just not aware of it? You say, well, what do you mean by that? When you say, if you say, morality is subjective, there are no moral absolutes, you're actually making a statement that is very absolute. It's extremely absolute. You're making a truth claim. You're claiming to know something about reality. Your claim is that the only kind of morality that we can talk about is what? Is your kind, the relative kind. It's an absolute statement. Yours is the only one that exists, and you have excluded the possibility of objective morality before we even start the conversation. You're saying that there is a limited universe of morality that we can consider all others are what? They're illegitimate. That's an absolute statement. That's not a relative statement. And if you're going to make that statement, then, then I think it's fair for me to say, OK, that's your position. I respect that. But on what basis have you decided that? On what basis are you deciding that objective morality cannot be a possibility? And if you think, OK, individually, I, I don't have a basis. That's just the way that I want it to be. That's going to sound really arrogant. You're going to sound like you've made yourself the king or queen of philosophy. And in that respect, you're now shoving your morality down everyone else's throat. But if you argue, well, it comes out of my society. That's what our society currently believes. That sounds kind of foolish. Because all I have to do is remind you of a time when our society believed something different. Go back a couple hundred years ago, and we can talk about how American society believed that slavery was morally acceptable. Just because they believe that didn't make it true. It didn't make it moral. I'd argue that you actually don't believe that that was moral at that point in time, which means then I'm going to ask you, why do you believe American slavery was immoral? 
You can't say to me because my current society thinks that way. If you say that to me, then I'm gonna say, so if your current society thought that that was acceptable, you'd be okay with it. And say, well, no, of course not. So then I'm gonna to go to the other side, I'm gonna say, well, then if it's just a personal preference of yours, how do you feel about that? You wouldn't enslave someone, doesn't feel right for you, but anybody else could do it and that'd be okay with you. I think at some point, if we go back and forth long enough, you'll get irritated with me. And eventually you'll say, it's just wrong, can't you see that? And I'll say, yes, absolutely, of course I can see that. But you have no way to account for believing that. You have no way to justify why you believe what you believe. Doesn't mean that what you believe is actually wrong, I actually happen to agree with you. I just am saying you can't account for why you believe that. Would you consider an alternative explanation? I've considered yours, would you consider the way that I see the world. Here's the way that I understand this. There is an objective morality out there, why? Because there is a free moral agent who created this world. And when he created this world, he built his morality into it. And there's a sense of that that each one of us has. And so we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong because of who he is and how he built things. I know sin enters into that and distorts that, but it doesn't erase it. And so we don't think that something like American slavery was okay. And we're not about to say, well, it was okay for them, not okay for us. Instead we say, no, it was just as wrong for them as it would be for us today. We make an absolute moral statement and we're not basing that belief on ourselves as individuals. We're not basing that in our society. We're appealing to something that's external to you, it's external to me, it's external to our society. And we're saying for all time, then, now, in the future, it's wrong to own someone. It's just wrong. In that moment, we're saying there is an absolute universal morality, and we live that way because God built that into his world. And if there is an absolute moral, objective reality, then it makes sense that the same God would come and judge when his morality is violated. When his understanding of the best way to treat each other is violated. That's what you're seeing here in Genesis 19. God has decided to judge the city because verse 13, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. He's heard in the past that some people are getting harmed. They're being mistreated. They're not being treated the way that he would treat them. Not only has that happened in the past, he sent two angels to experience what the city is like now, and they have experienced being mistreated firsthand. It's helpful if you understand a little bit about the hospitality codes of the ancient Near East here. The hospitality codes regulated how strangers would interact with each other when they encountered each other. Specifically, it laid out the obligations that they had to each other. One of those obligations was protection. So if you entered into someone's home, you entered into their tent, then that person had an obligation to guard you, to protect you, that you came under their umbrella of authority for your good. And that's what Lot is appealing to uh, when he talks to the mob that's gathered out in front of his house at night. All the men of the city, both young and old, are demanding that he send the angels out to him, to them. And Lot's defending, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now he's really caught. Which one is more important, my responsibility to the larger society or my responsibility to my family? I have two communities. I don't know really which way to go with this. And he says, I'll give you my daughters instead. 
on one level, that's a world in which we just can't get ourselves in enough. But he says, only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. And he's saying, they've come under my roof. They're under my protection. I'm the host. I'm offering them hospitality. What you're doing now, what you're planning on doing, is not simply misguided. It's wicked. It's evil. It's morally wrong. And that's the final straw for God. Not only have other people's cries gone up to him, his messengers have now personally been mistreated as well. The city is not any different, and God greenlights the angels to judge the city, and they do. Now, we could spend the rest of our time this morning profitably studying all of the different ways that that judgment is talked about. We could look at verse 13 and unpack the, the fact that they are planning to destroy the city, or we could look at what the word punish in verse 15 means, or what disaster in verse 19 means, or we could study the different ways that that disaster actually comes in verses 24 and 25 with fire raining down on the city. And the reason that we would do that is because we want to understand what holiness is all about. We want to understand what evil actually feels like to the Lord, and we want to get a sense of what it's like on his inside, and we want to get a sense of what it is that we've actually been saved from. We're not going to do that. So I'm going to urge you, take this chapter home one day before you go to school, before you go to work, and just highlight all of the different ways that you find this disaster there, and do that study for yourself. We're not going to do that this morning, because what happens to Sodom is not actually the biggest point in this chapter. Lot is far more the focal point of the story than Sodom is. Think about all the action that takes place. The angels come to him, the mob scene at his house, his interactions with other people, even the fiery judgment itself. All of those things are there to highlight something about Lot. They show you things about him. And what they reveal is an incredibly empty, hollow man. Three things that you can see real quickly. You'll see that he has no influence, that he leaves behind an ugly legacy, and that he ends up with a wasted life. In other words, this judgment of God that comes down on others highlights things about Lot. And it highlights that despite all of the so-called success of his life, all of the things that you can see, that success is actually covering up this empty life underneath. And I think one of the horrors of this passage is that there's no indication in it that he understood any of that until the judgment came. Think quickly here, again, about the story with me. The mob gathers outside his home at night. They're demanding that he give the angels to them. He goes out to try and reason with them. He makes that horrible suggestion about offering his daughters instead. You recognize he's taking this hospitality code very seriously, sense of righteousness here. But their response from the mob, verse 9, is to say, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. And effectively, what they're saying to him is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come here and tell us how to live, to impose your morality on us? We decide what is right and wrong for us. We decide our own morality, and we're fine with what we're doing. So get out of the way. What did you just learn there about Lot? You learned that he has absolutely no impact on other people whatsoever. His words don't make any difference. 
the angels have to pull him back inside, strike the rest of the people with blindness. Lot attempts to be the protector and ends up having to be protected. Now remember, earlier in the day, where is he? He's sitting out in the gateway. He's looking for all the world like he's a leader in the city. The reality, however, is that he has no persuasive influence over anyone whatsoever. They reject his values. They reject his lifestyle. They don't listen to him. And that's not true simply of that nameless, faceless mob. It's also true of people who are closer to him. The angels tell him, verse 12, to get anyone out of the city that's related to him. So he goes to the guys who are engaged to his daughters, and he tries to persuade them to leave, and he tries to tell them, this is not a good place for you to stay. And what did, how did they respond? They think he's joking. They don't take him seriously. Lot is not a leader of people. Lot's a buffoon in this passage. He has no influence on his society for good. No one sees anything in him that makes them pull up short. Nothing in him that convicts them. Nothing that makes them think we need to change the way that we're living. It's not a godly influence on an ungodly society. And here the contrast with Abraham is really stark. Abraham has been blessed by the Lord in order to what? To be a blessing to the nations, to impact them, to affect them. Lot is unable to impact his society. He's no better at impacting his family. His wife has no interest in life if she can't have what she did in Sodom. So when she's about to lose it all, she turns back and she shares in Sodom's judgment. His daughters aren't any better. We stopped reading the chapter at verse 30. If you continue on down through the rest of the chapter there, you discover that his daughters get him drunk and that he then fathers his own grandchildren. Those grandchildren grow up into two nations that join the list of nations that were difficult for Israel to deal with. And again, the contrast with Abraham is right on the surface here. God chose Abraham in chapter 18. We talked about this last week. So that Abraham would command his children and his household in matters concerning righteousness and justice. Lot's household has no righteousness. He's neither a godly leader of his society nor a godly leader of his family. And he loses everything. He had so many herds and flocks that they competed with Abraham's, and at the end of the chapter, he ends up with nothing. Everything that he's had, he had is all burned up. He's living in a cave on the edge of a ruined plain. Lot is the anti-Abraham. He ends his life not blessed. He's not enjoying the blessing of God, and he's not a blessing to anyone else. He has left no positive impact on the world around him. He's not involved in his community as a change agent. He doesn't raise a family that's honorable. He leaves this lasting legacy of difficulty for Israel. And in a very real sense, the world was better off before Lot entered the scene than it is after his life. Now there are places in scripture, like 2 Peter chapter 2, verses seven to eight, that suggests that Lot was a righteous man who hated what he saw and experienced in Sodom. Kind of get hints of that as he's trying to protect the angels, trying to be hospitable. But if that's the case, then he's the kind of person that the Apostle Paul has in mind when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's just gotten done talking about how he's laid the foundation of Christ, of, of the gospel, for people to then build on. And that that gospel, that 
what Jesus has done for us is supposed to in, uh, influence all that we think about, all that we do, the ways that we engage and interact with other people. And Paul says there are actually two different ways that you can build on Jesus. One of those ways is very effective, productive. One of those ways is ineffective and unproductive. He says in verse 12 of that chapter, if anyone builds on the foundation with good stuff, with gold, silver, precious stones, or with bad stuff, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. You'll get to see it. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It's the day of judgment. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And you read that, and Lot immediately jumps to your mind. This picture of a guy escaping the judgment of fire, but having absolutely nothing to show for it. It's a really strong warning for you and me, especially if we have all the outward trappings of a good, successful life. There is a judgment coming, and the judgment will reveal the worth of your life. It's going to show whether or not you've lived well. Lot escapes the judgment. Why? He's related to Abraham, verse 29, this righteous man, but he's saved with nothing to show for it. He ends his life with no redemptive influence on anybody. He has his life, but the sum total of it is that it's completely wasted. He has taken all the advantages and all the blessings that he's been given, and he's done what with them? He's thrown them away. Absolutely wasted them. And it's frightening how easy it is to do the same thing. It's really easy to focus on success as the people all around us define success and to measure our lives against that success and say, yeah, we're pretty much in line. It's really easy to do that rather than asking the question, how does God measure success? And where am I with respect to his measurement? Just let's, let's think about three areas of life real quickly. Think about your career. Think about how much time you've put into your career path. How much time you put into studying it, planning it out, thinking about it, taking advantage of various different opportunities that you had. Or think about your finances. Think about how you've set goals for yourself, how you have built your investment portfolio, how you've calculated, here, okay, here's how much we can spend right now because this is a future goal and this is the kind of way, lifestyle that we want to have. Or think about your kids, if you have kids, and how much time you've put into plotting the trajectory of them of what you want to have them involved in or not have them involved in, what you want them to do and where you want them to go to school and where you don't want them to go to school. Think about all that time and energy in those three areas, all that investment, and ask yourself this question, who was that for? If judgment came right now, would I have anything left for all of that time and energy that I invested? Would that time and energy revealed that I was doing that in order to bless other people, to influence them for righteousness? Or would it just be all gone? Now I want you to hear me very carefully, because here's one wrong way to hear me right now. Stop doing all of those things. Throw away your career, throw away your finances, don't throw away your kids. <laughs> That's the wrong way to hear me. I'm not telling you, go run into a monastery somewhere. What I'm saying is it's not about doing different things in your life. It's about doing things differently. 
very important distinction. It's not about doing different things in your life. It's about doing the same things differently for different reasons. Your career is important. It can be an important way that you influence the world for good, godly purposes. Or it can simply be another element of your own success. How are you thinking about it? Has it been primarily for yourself? Think well of yourself. Or has it been primarily so that you can be a redemptive agent of righteousness in this world? How are you thinking about finances? They can have a great place if you are using them to provide a, a launching pad so that you and the rest of your family, the people who are close to you, can actually enter into the larger world and influence it. Or they can be a really ugly thing if you're using your finances to make your life just simply more comfortable and more padded. Plans for your kids. Are those plans driven by your concern for righteousness and justice? This is a world that needs more righteous people in it. Is that what you're thinking for your kids? Or are your plans more, here's the things I want them in because then they'll like me and then I'll feel like I'm a good parent. What's your goal in each of those areas? See, you realize it's really easy to fall into the trap that Lot fell into. It's very easy to invest tons of time, to invest years of planning, to invest tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on goals that in a moment when judgment comes, will just wipe it all away. It's very easy to live a useless life and not know it until judgment comes. See, when I'm thinking clearly, Lot frightens me. He frightens me mostly because I know how easy it is to follow in his footsteps. See, Lot did not look down at Sodom and think to himself, oh man, look, there's all kinds of immorality there. I can't wait to go dive in and have as much as I can get. It's not in his mind. He leaves Ur of the Chaldeans with his uncle Abraham. Why? God calls Abraham, says, leave that pagan country and come and I will be your God. And Lot says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that, and goes with his uncle. He's not drawn to Sodom for the sin. Why is he drawn to Sodom? He's tired. He's tired of struggling in the wilderness. He's tired of dealing with famine, tired of dealing with want, tired of wandering, tired of the strife between his herdsmen and Abraham's. He gets a chance. He looks down at Sodom. He sees, man, that's a rich, lush area. Reminds me of the Garden of Eden. I'd like to have heaven here on earth. You know what, it, it reminds me of Egypt, where we just came back and, and there was lots of food there. Lot sees all that and he's ready to settle down. Ready to live a little, ready to kick back, enjoy the good life. So he moves his tent outside the city. A little bit later, you discover, no, he's actually in the city. A little bit later today, oh, he's now leading the city. In other words, Lot did not set out one day say to himself, let's see, what is the best way to end up with an empty, useless life? I know, I'll move in next door to radically immoral people who will have a negative impact on my, on my wife and daughters. It's not what he's thinking. What is he doing? He's making little compromised steps, one after another, and the next one doesn't seem so bad because it's just a short distance from the previous one. And that's when you realize that sin is not simply these big, ugly, neon light kind of things that are wicked, things that you can see a mile away and go, man, that's disgusting. I don't want anything to do with that. It's not only what sin is. Sin is far more serious. It's far more dangerous. 
Sin is any time that you look at something and say, I want that thing, whatever it is. I want that, and I want it so badly that I'm going to build my life on it. I'm going to build my life around having it. I would rather build my life on that than I would trusting God and enjoying what God offers because that thing just looks so much better to me. See, sin is not only when you want bad things. Sin is also when you want good things, but you want them too much. You want them more than you want God. You want them more than what God offers you. Say it a little bit differently. Sin is not simply when you desire evil things. It's also when you over-desire good things. It's when you want something more than you want the Lord. It's when you find something more satisfying to your heart than you find the Lord. It's when you look for that God substitute in the things that God's made. Be very careful, because when that happens, you've set yourself down that road, compromising one step at a time. You have no idea where that road goes, but you want what that road promises, and you set yourself down it. It's a very heavy chapter, and it comes with a really serious warning that you and I have to take seriously this morning. And yet, this chapter also comes with a lot of hope. It's not a simple morality tale. It doesn't have a lesson at the end that says something like, if you love the world, you'll lose your life. And the reason that it doesn't end that way, because as much as Lot is the focal point, there's someone actually who's even more central to this chapter than Lot is. It's just like we've been seeing with Abraham. God is the center character in the story. And if you pay attention to who God is and what he is, suddenly you see there's a lot of hope here. Again, let's think here a little historically between God and Lot. Lot's already been rescued once. You go back to chapter 14. Lot had been living in Sodom. The king of Sodom went to war, lost the war, and so Lot was taken captive, prisoner of war. And God delivers him through his uncle Abraham. That means that Lot has already been rescued once. Now that salvation event should have done what? It should have woken Lot up. He should have realized, you know what? Blessing is really found with the people of God, not with Sodom. Lot ignores that warning, moves back into Sodom. That's a point where God should say, you know what? You deserve whatever you get. And God doesn't say that. Sends the angels to destroy the cities, but only after they've brought Lot out. And so they warn him, verse 12, of what they're about to do, and they urge him to leave. Now, that first salvation event was what? It was pure grace. What's the second warning? It's even more grace. And you start to get a bigger sense now of what grace actually means. You're hearing something of God's heart for Lot in this moment. It's a heart, however, that Lot completely ignores. Next sentence after the warning, verse 15, begins, as morning dawned. You think, wait, what do you mean morning? The angels were there the night before with the mob. That's when they told Lot to get out. It's now morning. Somehow, Lot has frittered away the entire night. What's he doing? He's not simply taking mercy for granted the first time. He's taking mercy for granted the second time. At that point, the angels involve themselves in his life one more time, and they say, up, hurry. What's this? This is the third warning. You know what? If, if I have a mob outside my house banging the door down, I don't think I need three warnings. Apparently, Lot does. That's amazing. Let this amaze you more. Lot gets them. God stoops to give Lot the help that matches his need. And you don't have a single indication in this passage that God's upset about that. He's not grumbling. 
He's not losing his temper. He's not complaining. Starting to understand the character and the nature of grace and the character and nature of mercy. Very next verse, verse 16, then tells us, but he lingered. <laughs> lingered for what? What are you waiting for? He's got as clear a sign as he possibly could have, and he's hesitating. He's lingering. And you think, how can you be so clueless? Unfortunately, I know how you can be that clueless. I suspect that a number of you know how to be that clueless as well. When you first get a warning, you take it very seriously, right? You might even act on it initially, but if you have to have a warning, what does that mean? It means you're not fully awake. You're not fully aware of what's going on. And it doesn't take a whole lot for you to close your eyes and go back to sleep. And so mentally, it sounds a little bit like this. You start to think, oh man, okay, it's not too late. And initially, you're thankful that it's not too late. But when you hang out on it's not too late too long, it's not too late becomes, I still have time. And then you hang out on I still have time too long, and it becomes, I'll get around to it. And by the time you get to that, I'll get around to it, the warning is forgotten. Here's Lot. He doesn't know how to act in his own best interests. He's ignored God's warnings. You know what? God's worked overtime to get this man out of the city. And at this point in time, if I'm God, I'd have had enough of this. I'd be tempted to say something like, okay, Lot, you really don't want to leave? Fine. You die too. You worked hard enough to identify with these people in life. You might as well go all the way. If you share my uncharitable response to Lot, you have to realize God doesn't think like that. The angels do what? They grab Lot, his wife, his daughters, and they force them to leave the city. And you ask God, why? What's the point? Verse 16, because the Lord was merciful to them. He's acting through the angels, but behind all of this is the heart of God. The Lord was merciful. He's not ready to quit on this man who quit on himself a long time ago. Now when you say the word, God who is rich in mercy, I hope that you, that word mercy means a whole lot more to you than it did earlier. I start to look at this and I think, you know what, if God doesn't quit on a guy like Lot, maybe I can believe he won't quit on a guy like me either. But God's not done showing you his heart yet. The angels bring this family outside Lotum, outside Sodom and they tell them, verse 17, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. That's about as clear a statement as you can make. Verse 18, Lot again, oh no, my lords. You <laughs> think here's a guy who just doesn't get it. Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. No kidding. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Lot's been ordered to leave. Run for his life. He's still dragging his feet, still trying to make bargains with God. Get, get, get the picture here. The Lord of the universe has decided on this wayward planet there is a portion that is so disgusting that he's going to remove it and wipe it out. And Lot thinks he can negotiate the terms here. Hey, God, everything that I've done in life so far has been really screwed up. It's not panned out, but I got this new great idea that I think is better than yours. How about we go with it? 
Let God's response through the angel blow you away. Verse 21, behold, I grant you this favor also. This is not a story about a doomed social climber. It's a story about a great God. A God who puts up with stubborn people, bends low, he cares for them. A God who is faithful to them, but it's a faithfulness with compassion, faithfulness with kindness, with patience. What do you see here? You see sorry and pathetic people. You see the kind of people that Jerry Springer used to put on his show in order for you to laugh at them so that you could mock them and feel better because, well, whatever you're doing, it's not that bad. God doesn't laugh. He doesn't use Lot to give himself an inflated sense of self-importance. Instead, God tells you these kinds of stories about wretched people who just can't do what's best for themselves, can't do what's best for their families, and he's telling you that so he can tell you about himself. He tells you about people who make life hard on him, people who doubt him, people who ignore him, people who disobey him, people who are miserable to him. And in response, God takes his sovereignty and his power and he bends it on their behalf. It's kind to the undeserving. Do you think of yourself as undeserving this morning? If so, take heart, because here's a God who remains committed to his people despite their failings, and committed with compassion. Makes you think about Jesus when he was talking about the sole reason that he came to this earth, the entire purpose, trans, moving out of heaven to come down to earth. He said, it's to seek and to save the lost. That's it. That's the point. He told stories about a shepherd who would leave 99 sheep in order to go find the one who was straying. He reminded, taught that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to repent. It's a God who melts my heart because I am just like Lot. I'm just as reckless, just as foolish for myself, for my family. And what is it that gives me hope? It's knowing that I have a God whose compassion is greater than my foolishness. And you have that same God this morning doesn't matter if you've never come to this God before, if you've doubted him, if you're not even sure that he exists. It doesn't matter if you find yourself and say, you know what, I've wasted the last five years, 10 years, 20, 30. You have a God who's bringing judgment, but it's not yet. That means there's time. There is time to come to this merciful God and say, please forgive me. It's not the life that I want. I want to live a different kind of life, one that actually counts, one that lines up with you that's not wasted, one that actually has a hope of being built on you, finding you satisfying, one that can actually reach out into this world and affect it for good, one that helps build your kingdom and communicate your righteousness to other people. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us in a world that would just be all burned up and we would be gone. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this sense of who you are, this taste, this glimpse, so that we could actually come near to you and have confidence that you would receive us.
Lord, do that. Receive us now. Enter into our worlds, Lord. Redeem them. Make them fruitful. Make them count. In Jesus' name. Let's all arise.